up, y'all? Hope y'all are having a wonderful fall. It is just beautiful. I know a lot of the West is having some uh, some solid weather out there. Maybe it's too warm for a little a, a few of you guys, but for me, like seventy degrees uh, and and cold at night is like the perfect temperature. Um, hope you guys are enjoying your hunting seasons. They're in full swing. Uh, people are getting out there with a rifle now. Uh, some people are going on them, the, the through hikes, doing some of those, uh, through hikes, you know, Colorado trail, cause it's a perfect time to do it right now. So hopefully you guys are all, uh, out there and enjoying it. Uh, just wanted to let you guys know that today, that is Wednesday, October 19th, uh, we are beginning our, uh, second sale um, so basically what a seconds is, if you guys aren't familiar, it's basically uh, some sort of uh, tent or a backpack in some cases that um, a lot of times what happens is they have like a bunched seam in, in a certain spot, which basically means, uh, you know, if you pitch the tent in that tiny little area, you're not going to be able to get it perfectly flat, uh, just that seam. Um, in most cases, you're not even going to really notice it. Uh, most of them are very small, um, and they don't affect the functionality of the tent. Uh, they're still covered by a warranty, all that good stuff. Um, and then some, some of them have like holes that were punched in them, uh, that we have patched. So, you know, it's basically just an aesthetic thing, right? It, it doesn't look as pretty as a first, but these things are 15% off. Like I said, they're, they're covered by our warranty. Um, we also still have some garage sale items, which are like 40% off. Those are like used items, uh, out on the website. So check that out and uh you know get yourself a solid deal like i said 15 percent off for the seconds 40 for the garage sale items i know a lot of them are gone um but there's there's still some scraps hanging out um and just so you know what happened there is our facebook group seek outside adventures uh they got the first dibs on they got the first dibs on uh the garage sale you know, we, we basically posted it in that Facebook group. So they were the first ones that were able to, you know, see that sale. Um, so if you, if you want early access to stuff like that, check out that Facebook group, seek outside adventures, uh, could get you some good deals. There's also always people selling stuff like used, um, tents and backpacks and stuff on there. Um, and I'm sure a lot of you guys are, are on that because uh, the podcast listeners are the are the diehard Seek fans. Uh, I'm hoping, um, and same with that Facebook group. But if you're not, go join that group uh, because it's uh, it's definitely a positive for you. So um, right on. Well, this is kind of like a, a Pacific Northwest um, conservation recap podcast. Uh, we had a, a you know representatives from the tr from trcp and bha um and we were talking to them just about you know some of the big issues up there conservation wise so hopefully you guys enjoy this issue this uh podcast and these and us talking about these issues and y'all keep having a, a wonderful fall welcome to the seek outside podcast You think that's bad? See you, Ryan, on the phone in the office. <laughs> you like those stats, and I 
we're just wired that way. Yeah. Well, so how did you guys meet? Um, and maybe, uh, well, actually, let's start with this. So uh, start with you, Chris. Uh, would you mind just giving a quick little introduction here and who you are and what you do? Yeah, uh, Chris Ager. Um, I'm the Northwest Coordinator for Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. So I oversee uh, basically all the chapter functions, policy, state issues, uh, volunteer events, habitat, uh, restoration projects um, for, for Oregon and Washington. Um, so anything that has to do with in-state policy or, or anything like that that uh, um, falls under my purview. Right on. What about you, Michael? <clears throat> yeah, Michael Casey. I'm the Pacific Northwest Region Deputy Director for the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, or TRCP. And uh, I oversee the work here in Oregon and Washington for uh, the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership. Um, and I know you've had Joel Webster on before, so you've kind of got the background from him. But work under the public lands program for TRCP and, and really with the mission of TRCP to guarantee all Americans quality places to hunt and fish. Um, I oversee a lot of work on, on conservation here in Oregon and Washington. Right on. So how'd you guys meet? Um, obviously you guys are kind of both involved in, in policy and stuff like that. Is that, is that how you guys met up? It was, yeah, four or five years ago at, at that time I was just on the volunteer board and Mike and I, and then I was also working for another outfit that was focused on, um, fishing and fishing opportunities here here in Oregon um and I think we did a couple projects together Mike or we did some we were, we, we were doing something at the state level um and then from there we kind of been hunting buddies and and uh colleagues and uh, working in the same space nice yeah it's been fun starting as friends and then now working as colleagues together and still find some time to get out and hunt and fish uh, for both fun and work sometimes. So we're going out, uh, we'll talk more about it later, but we're actually heading out on a trucker hunt out in the Owyhee uh, here in a couple weeks. Uh, that's that's sweet. So um, I kind of want, we got a couple issues to tackle here. We're, this is kind of like our uh, the Pacific Northwest uh, conservation roundup. We're going to catch up on some things that are going on up there. Um, you know, we got a, we got a lot of listeners everywhere, but I do feel like we have a lot of folks up in the Pacific Northwest there. Um, so I kind of want to start with you, Chris. Um, so, so what do you specialize, what do you specialize in, uh, specifically like species wise up there in the Pacific Northwest? Um, in terms of like personally or like work wise? Yeah, like like work wise, like what are what? Obviously, you're involved in policy, but is there any specific area that you focus on more? Yeah, I think. Well, right now, I think our two biggest um, one of our two biggest issues right now is salmon and steelhead uh, in the Columbia River. Um, if we break it down by state, uh, we have a Washington Commission um, that's been taking up a lot of our time as well. Uh, that's a big hot topic. Um, I know you guys had the P and Wild guys on, I think a couple episodes back, um, about the spring bear issue. And that's kind mm -hmm. of what's driven a lot of that work for us in the chapter here in Washington. Um, and then in, in Oregon, we've been really focused on, uh, land acquisition and kind of, you know, um, backcountry hunters, anglers, you know, we're dedicated to public lands, public lands access. Um, and so in Oregon, we've, um, we've been able to fundraise a decent amount of money over the last year and 
um, and, and help to open up some some public lands in the state. So what do you what do you guys um, are you guys mostly in in acquisitions? Um, are you guys mostly looking for like um, pieces of private land that you know connect two different pieces of public land, or w- what do you look for uh, in that ac- acquisition area? Well, right now it's actually it's it was been it's been like a collaboration uh, project with a, a handful of outfits. Um, you know, we've been able to raise over forty thousand dollars, and even though you know it's a it's a good chunk of change, it's a it's a small percentage to actually what this this piece of or this parcel cost. Um, it the the project itself is called the mining project, and it basically came under um, uh, well, uh, an agency's. Um, desk saying that hey we have an opportunity to buy this part uh, to buy this property you know it's anywhere from um i believe it's 15 acres in total um and so it's not it's not the biggest it's not the biggest piece of property um but it's uh it buds up to some incredible um forest uh forest land and stuff and so um it's just been one of those projects that we've been able to hang our hat on um, since we are, you know, compared to like a Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation or uh, some of these larger organizations that have a little bit more money to burn. Um, we've been able to do a lot of crowdfunding um, and raise some money for that. So we've been pretty proud of that. Yeah, and I'll just jump in on that one too, because that, um, that mining project is uh, it's a really, you know, one of the historic Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation um, acquisition projects and so rmef has been doing acquisitions for you know decades it's really one of their bread and butter projects related to conservation uh, i think they've got over seven million acres in total across the 30 years they've been in operation um between acquisitions and conservation easements uh, so it's it's a huge impact and here in oregon uh that mining project is something they've been working on for a number of years and in partnership with bha and oregon hunters association TRCP helped on some of the policy side of things too, but um, that's a it's a fifteen thousand acre project uh, that will go to it's two different phases and they're using land and water conservation fund dollars as well as private money as well as state agency money uh, and then RMEF is funding a bunch as well um, so it's really a big partnership project um, but it's in the uh, have you guys I mean the Eagle Cap Wilderness is really one of our one of Oregon's most famous wilderness areas. It's our yep. largest, uh, 330,000 acres. And I mean, for an elk hunter, it's, it's the cream of the crop. Uh, it's just real wild open country. Um, and this is a 15,000 acre parcel of forest that is private, private logging right now. Um, and so RMEF has worked to secure, uh, an agreement with o- Oregon department of fish and wildlife to make it a state wildlife area. And so over the next five years, they're going to purchase 15,000 acres in total. The first phase they just completed, it's about 4,000. Um, and then they'll do another seven, no, they'll do another 11,000 afterwards. Um, and I got the chance to go out and turkey hunt out there this spring. And it's just really an incredible piece of property. Uh, it's some of the only lower elevation country that is... Um, available for like that mine and river drainage is, is a really critical migration corridor. Um, and ODFW will keep managing it for wildlife, but also continue, uh, some of the working landscape components like timber harvest and, and grazing to a certain extent as well. So it's something that's been really exciting to have happen here in Oregon. We're, we're stoked on it. 
Yeah, that's awesome. So I have a question. Um, obviously, you guys worked, you, you guys are both from different conservation organizations, right? Um, and it seems like there's a lot of projects that conservation organizations work together on. But does it ever come up to where, um, you know, a couple of these co- uh, conservate, like, is it ever that uh, TRCP and BHA kind of butt heads on a subject, um, whether it, you know, kind of almost like a competition. Does that ever happen with you guys? No, uh, it hasn't happened for Chris and I, you know, speaking just from the, the local oh, level. Yeah. Um, you know, I think nationally, you know, just speaking from personal experience, I think uh, it's really helpful to have these partner organizations that do yeah, slightly like different guys. things. Um, you know, for example, TRCP, it, we're really focused on behind the scenes policy and one-on-one decision maker and then some outreach to our membership. I mean, we've got 130,000 uh, members now, but we don't have state chapters, right? So that's something that TRCP doesn't focus on. Mm. Um, and it's, uh, it's a blessing and a curse because we don't, I don't have to run the same volunteer events that Chris does and I can get a little more policy work done, but we don't quite have the same level of um, engagement from our membership like BHA does. And so it's great to have sort of the mix of, of uh, BHA helping to, you know, bring up really important issues to their members. Um, and TRCP can sort of work more behind the scenes uh, as well. So, Steelhead and Salmon. Um, I was just listening to, I think it was the Mediator podcast, right? Um, and they were talking about how the Klamath, uh, Klamath, Klamath Lake uh, and like the Klamath Basin, you know, it, it's basically become bone dry, which is historically it's been one of those spots um, uh, along with uh, the Great Salt Lake and um, the, uh, central Valley in California where waterfowl, you know, that's where 95% of the waterfowl would nest. Right. And they were kind of talking about some of the reasons why it's gone dry. Um, it, it's not all just evaporated. It's, it's been pushed to separate areas. Um, you know, agriculture, obviously, um, but I did hear that, uh, there was a concerted effort, um, uh, in pushing some of that water uh, down into the Klamath River uh, to, to help the, the salmon and steelhead uh, get a little bit colder water. Um, would you mind kind of explaining um, what it is that humans have to, because salmon are, are becoming, and it's very sad, but it seems like they're kind of becoming a more conservation dependent species, at least down here in the, in the lower 48. Um, could you kind of just break down the whole where where the what the status is of of salmon in in Oregon and Washington right now? Yeah, um, I think you hit it. I mean, it, it's hard to it's hard to contextualize in a short way, but basically, you know, you're right, Ryan. It's it, we're not in a good way for salmon and steelhead. Um, you know, historically. You know, one could look at, you know, runs this year. We've had actually a pretty decent uh, Chinook season, right, for springers and, and early mm-hmm. falls and summers. Um, and so everybody's been, you know, hooting and hollering about how, oh, my gosh, you know, we've got salmon back. You know, we estimated, you know, over 120 to 130,000 fish over Bonneville Dam 
on the Columbia River, which is great when you look at when it passed years. But when you look over like the last 30, 40, and 50 years, we are nowhere near historic run sizes. Um, and it's it really all points to uh, this continuing um, downward trend uh, since the lower Snake River dams have been put in on the on the um, uh, on the lower Snake River. So these four lower Snake River dams. Um, and I'm, I don't know if you've heard a lot about it, but it's, it, you know, it's one of the bigger, you know, um, conservation efforts or uh, campaigns that have been moving across uh, the last two and a half years that's gain, gaining steam back. Um, there's been a lot of orgs and individuals working on getting these dams removed over the last, you know, 20, 30 years. They were put in in, um, in the late 60s, early 70s. And so um, there can be, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of finger pointing um, to why we have such dismal runs um, here on the Columbia and therefore into uh, Oregon and Washington, um, since there's so many different rivers and streams um, that, you know, have historically been steelhead and salmon abundant um, that are drying up, just like how you're seeing on the Klamath. Um, we're seeing that in the shoots, like for Oregon, for example, we're seeing that in the shoots, the John Day, these rivers that you know, if we're switching over steelhead and have been, um, world renowned for their steelhead runs, just world-class angling, uh, whether that, you know, you're using a gear rod or you're swinging a fly. Um, and mm. this year alone, you know, the Deschutes river is, has been basically closed for the entire season. Um, and it's, you know, it's funny when you talk about, you know, both side by side, because one year could be great respectively for salmon um and then the next could be uh, great uh, great for steelhead um or they could be great for both in in one sitting um this year steelhead and specifically on the Deschutes river um are in are in a bad way you know they're expecting 480 fish to, to for an escapement meaning how many hmm. uh native fish can get past the dams uh, or the lower section of, of, of the Deschutes um and to you know back in 2015 there was 5,000 fish that met that goal and so we're just seeing downward trends wow. everywhere across the board so yeah oh man that's that's so with the dams aside from because it sounds like that's kind of like the common thing with both salmon and steelhead and it's it's very obvious when you look at it right it's this big block in the middle of the river but aside from the obvious you know um you know obstruction of the path to to spawn are there any other negatives uh or effects that dams have on these fish yeah so it, it there's you know yeah besides the obvious of literally just having um a, a solid structure in the middle of the river um there's a there's a number of factors uh why everybody is so focused on snake river is because the snake river has historically provided 50 percent of uh salmon and steelhead for the entire for like the entire columbia river basin um you know back in its heyday that was uh 50 percent of, of 15 million fish um and wow yeah, and so these four dams are are cutting off all this pristine cold water habitat. You're saying how you know people are are looking to divert a lot of water to the Klamath. 
um, to, you know, to bring that cold water there. And it's because salmon and steelhead need clean, cold water uh, to reproduce, to, to get onto their spawning beds and, and to, you know, produce the next generation of fish. Um, dams create massive reservoirs behind them. These massive reservoirs are, uh, you know, obviously have um, taken away a lot of the vegetation on the on the side of the banks that would cool off the water even more. Instead, you leave mm. these massive bodies of water that are that are warming up and and creating these uh, hot spots for salmon where migrating fish can't, you know, unless they're getting out of that heat, they can't survive in in you know sixty. Uh, or 70 degrees and above. Um, so there's, you know, there's certain thresholds that basically uh, signals to a lot of these agencies, ODFNW, DFW, or WDFW, um, that will put halts on on fisheries immediately if, if water temperatures go above that, above that threshold. Um, and basically dams uh, or these diversions are, are, are um, catastrophizing those situations for, for salmon and steelhead. And on top of that, right, you know, even if we're able to get a bunch of fish past these dams, you know, we're having these uh, um, mitigation strategies of, of transferring fish from lower dams all the way up to spawning grounds in, in the upper snake. Um, there's still the, the whole uh, journey of getting um, smolts and juveniles down the river and back into the ocean. Um, there's a recent study out uh, that says that up to 50% of fish uh, or there's up to 50% mortality uh, of juveniles and smolts that go through the dams. And so, and that's with each dam. Wow. So there's four of them. And so it's, it's basically, you know, we're, even though a lot of these smolts are hatchery raised, uh, you know, and there's also a good portion of them are, that are going to be native, that are going to be from natural spawning. Um, but basically, you know, we're just, uh, you know, we're, we're not really giving them a fighting chance, even if we are putting in, you know, billions of dollars of taxpayer monies to, to produce these fish, to get out into the, get out into the ocean. Well, I was going to say, I mean, how much money are we spending on, um, you know, getting these, these salmon, uh, primed for going back up the river. And I wonder how that would compare to the amount of money that is, you know, or the, energy generation because that's typically what these dams are are used for right is is like hydropower right do you do you have any knowledge of you know what that what those numbers are yeah and i'll just don't get to it but these are rough numbers i used to know them uh, more intently but i'm i believe that um the four lower snake dams right now are surplus energy uh they provide extra power to the grid for um but they only uh provide about four percent of, of the Pacific Northwest energy or to the grids that they're tied to. So it's a really small percentage. Um, the other thing too, is that, you know, there's been, and one of the main reasons why there's this massive campaign or this massive energy push to, to, to remove these dams right now is because they're also all, most of them are slated for, um, uh, review and, and restoration because they are what, what's you know 70 Mm. plus 30 almost over 50 years old so um a lot of these dams are um are you know slated to get uh renovated um but that's also going to cost you know millions and millions of dollars of taxpayer money um and so there's been this massive push okay if we remove these dams can we 
mitigate the loss of that energy through different means of uh, renewable energies? Um, are we going to be able to uh, still uh, provide transportation for the ag industry, provide water um, for, for, uh, to agriculture, um, and so on? And, and what I'm trying to get at is that Senator uh, Simpson uh, from Idaho put together a, um, a, a massive package that basically said, removing the dams is viable. It's going to take this amount of money and it's going to take all of these strategies, you know, X, Y, and Z uh, to do it. And this will help to restore salmon and steelhead um, because all of the um, uh, studies show that if by removing this area and pro providing these cold water, um, this cold water habitat uh, in the upper snake, you know, it could potentially br bring back a, a million Chinook um, up to that basin. Um, and when you look, when you think about only 120 are just making it over Bonneville Dam on the lower Columbia, you know, hundreds of miles away, a million fish sounds pretty damn good. So, um, and so, yeah, it's just been, it's been a major push from Senator Simpson. Um, and now, uh, Senator Murray and Governor Inslee from Washington have put together a package, a similar package, um, because unfortunately Simpson's plan kind of. Uh, fell dead in the water um, among uh, uh, Congress and and um, and just kind of policy in general, and so and so yeah, I'm kind of talking in circles. I feel like right now though. Gary, <laughs> remember your first what your initial quote? Well, and I, I had a few. I just had a couple of thoughts on that, Chris, because that's that's a great overview, uh, and this isn't something that TRCP. You know, TRCP is playing a supporting role at a small level on the Snake River Dam um, work, but it's not something we have funding to really dive into deeply. Um, but, you know, just like most, so many things in conservation that have impacts to livelihoods uh, are sticky issues. And this is certainly one of those. Um, so the the Bonneville, uh, so the Columbia River hydropower system is really unique that it's it's a publicly owned utility, the Bonneville Power Administration. Um, and BPA is, uh, it's part of why the Northwest has such affordable uh, power bills. And that's one of the reasons you're seeing, you know, facilities from Facebook and Apple come in and uh, use this region as a, you know, basically a storage facility um, because it's, it's cheap electricity that's reliable. Um, and so, that's on the lower Columbia system itself. So BPA operates 31 dams. Um, the, the really big ones are on the Columbia and those would never really be considered to be taken out because they are so critical to hydropower. Um, but the four lower Snake River dams, um, they're really meant for transportation purposes more so than hydropower. And hydropower is supplemental. Um, it does provide, like Chris said, some power, but it's not the main issue. The main issue is that you know, I got friends, I grew up on the coast outside Astoria, and I've got friends that work for Tidewater tugboats. And Tidewater is the main carrying uh, tug, tug carrier for, you know, what is whatever they want to bring up and down the Columbia River system. And so they travel all the way from the port of Vancouver, uh, where Chris is located, all the way up to Lewiston, Idaho. Um, and it's a really efficient form of transport. So that's one of the sticky issues for removal of the dams. Um, the other is the hydropower, and there is about 50,000 acres of agriculture that is irrigated from those dams. Um, 
And so, you know, there's there's a combination of, of factors there that would affect livelihood. Um, Representative Simpson put together a package that would have cost about $31 billion um, and solve a lot of these issues, uh, but it's still was pretty scary and unknown for a lot of folks whether they would really benefit from it. Um, and so, you know, Governor Brown supported his proposal. I think one of the things that's really interesting about it, it's, it's you know, Representative Simpson is, is a Republican in Idaho, um, but he sees the impact that Idahoans are, are having. I mean, right now they're arguably some of the most impacted from a fisheries perspective um, because what was once such a great fishery through the Snake River uh, and and then all the tributaries that run off the snake in Idaho uh, aren't seeing the returns and it's greatly impacting communities like Riggins, Idaho, um, that used to have a huge fishery-based economy and are really struggling now. So it's it's sticky stuff, uh, but removal of the dams uh, time and time again has been shown to be the, the one solution that we have right now. Um, short of removal of dams, the history and the future of these historic runs is sort of an unknown factor moving forward. Well... I think I called I said Senator Simpson and not Representative Simpson. That's my bad. Sorry. Sorry, Rep. Nah. Rep, uh, Rep. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm sure he'd forgive you. You did a pretty good job of laying out his, his plan there. Um, <clears throat> so aside from the dam removal, like say that that was off the table, have there been any other um, conservation you know, thoughts out there on how you might be able to bump up these numbers of, of salmon. You know, I get, I'll take a quick crack at that too. Cause I, I forgot to mention that, um, because Bonneville power is a federally, it's a public utility company. Um, they are required to mitigate for their impacts on the, the salmon runs basically. Mm. And so, Bonneville Power has invested, I think the number is about $17 billion over the number of years that they've been in operation to offset for the impact to salmon. Um, but we're still seeing declines. And so one of the things, I mean, Bonneville Power has done a ton to try to improve salmon and, and steelhead numbers. Um, one of the things that they have done is, is partner with local Northwest tribes and offer um, mitigation properties to be managed in trust and perpetuity by tribal governments to manage fish wildlife habitat. Um, so the Warm Springs tribe, um, the Burns Paiute tribe, um, and others operate uh, and own effectively Bonneville power lands in trust in perpetuity to try to benefit the impact of those dams had um, at the offset. And so those are a couple things. I mean, there's tons of work going on uh, and it's working in some places. I'll let Chris speak to, to that more, but it is, um, it's not catching up with what we need fast enough. And I think Mike made the great point. I mean, we went like taxpayer dollars. We have put $17 billion into trying to mitigate this loss. And we have not seen that return yet. And so we're at a critical yeah. point right now of like, okay, do we keep on sinking money into a broken system or do we change up our plan and point to what the available science says. And available science says removing these dams gives us the best bet for restoring um, historical runs of salmon and steelhead for the various species of salmon and steelhead um, here in the Columbia River Basin. 
Um, are, so are these two species, like salmon and steelhead, are they pretty like in- intermingled as as in like are there any things that you could do that might increase like steelhead numbers, but it, maybe it'll hurt salmon numbers or vice versa? Is there anything going going on like that? I can't speak to the intricacies between the species. You know, when we're looking at salmon, we've got five separate species of salmon. So we've got uh, coho, pinks, um, chum, or, or, or dog salmon, uh, kings, and sockeye. Um, the most that you hear about <clears throat> in the Columbia are cohos or silvers and chinooks, which are kings. Um, and then sockeye too. Sockeye actually has had a great year compared to the last handful or really decades. You know, we've actually seen a decent fishery. Um, and when I mean fishery, like, you know, fish are coming back to, uh, Lake Wenatchee all the way up in Northern Washington. Um, and they've actually been able to have like an open fishery where they're, you Mm. know, originally making that run all the way from the mouth of Columbia. And so if you look on a map, like that's an incredibly large distance. Um, and so when, when you break it down like that, you know, each of these species collectively are in a, in a, in a, in, are in a different shape. Um, <clears throat> sockeye mm-hmm. have historically not really done or have not had a good push back up into, um, uh, the snake area. Um, but Chinook and Coho are kind of like the target ones that are getting the most attention, um, from hatcheries as well as steelhead, you know, it's like, I, w- I would say the most fish that get the most attention from hatchery are Chinook, Coho and, and steelhead. Um, steelhead are a little bit, I would say that this isn't a, like a, this isn't like a scientific opinion, but like, I, I feel like steelhead are a little bit more, um, uh, temperamental. Um, if mm. the habitat's not there, um, you know, they're, they're not going to be there. And so when you look at these dams and these reservoirs too, which is what I forgot to mention earlier, you know, if these dams were to, re- re- were to be removed, it's 34,000 acres of, of stream side and riverside and riparian habitat that's going to get available, not only for hunting access, but for different game species, bird species, you know, we're talking about upland game. We're talking about different fish species out there too. And so, um, it, it, it's just kind of like, you know, in the conservation world, you know, a lot of the pros outweigh the cons in the scenario. So going back to the dam thing, um, say they do knock these dam these dams down. I could imagine that a lot of that streamside habitat, um, has probably, I mean, be, been forever altered. Obviously, it's not going to back to exactly the way it is. Is there any conservation work that will have to um, go into restoring the the stream side to where it is even, you know, where it is cooling down that water and to where it is pretty close to natural? Or is it something where, you know, you give it a couple years and, and it's back to the way it was? I think it's a twofold thing. Um, you know, El- the Elwha up in Washington is a is a really good 
um, the Elwha River, the dam was removed. I can't remember how many years ago, but the Streamside area, they actually did like a time lapse video, and it came back within a you know a, a couple of years. And you know we're talking about really good willow habitat and and kind of like that high or that high cascade coastal um, habitat. Um, and so I would imagine that you know some areas that will come back easier than others, and then there's probably going to have to be some contracted work to to restore some areas and just do plantings um, to either speed up that process um, or mitigate areas that you know have been, um, I guess, too uh, or impacted a little bit too much. Yeah, and that's I think it's uh, the Elwha is a great example of of. It's sort of the poster child of recovery after dam removal. It was the largest dam removal done at that time, just back in the early 2000s. Um, it's a different habitat, though, than the lower snake. And so definitely doable to do restoration work, but we're talking more of an arid ecosystem. Um, and you've lost a lot of that topsoil, especially in that upper region. So it, it will definitely require uh, restoration work. You know, the Klamath, the Klamath dam removal is happening um oh. so it will be a huge example uh sort of a showcase of does it work um we think it will but it's never been done before at this scale and so i believe the dam removal is scheduled to start in 2023 maybe 2024 uh, but it's a 450 million dollar contract wow. um so it includes some of the restoration work in addition to the dam removal but it's you know it's that's a big price tag but what's the price of having salmon um it's been pretty clear that that salmon and, and dams don't work on a klamath and so this is uh you know this is the the price that we need to pay in order to try to keep salmon um collectively around and yeah the klamath region in general is you know we've just been talking about the snake but between the klamath and the columbia river system uh the northwest has a has two pretty major hurdles. I know where you're at, Ryan. You got the Columbia or the uh, Colorado River, which has its own, you know, probably the most recognized challenges in the country. But oh, yeah. Klamath and Columbia aren't far behind. Yeah, it's in, it's it's so interesting, man. Especially it, it's such a it's such a weird space right now, right? Because I mean, we're facing so many different problems with overpopulation, and with that comes and it, I don't even think of it as like overpopulation of the earth. It's just overpopulation of like the West. Like it, it's very clear that we really don't have enough water for the amount of people that are living out here, but it's, um, you know, and as a hunter and fisherman and just a, a lover of conservation and animals, um, I would absolutely love to be able to go up to, to Oregon or Washington and, and have a salmon experience like you might get up in Alaska or, I mean, I feel like California might be a little bit too far gone, but even there, I mean, you know, I'm sure there's still some rivers up, up North there that you can, you can kind of recover. Um, but then there's also like the, the, the thing of, man, some of these rivers are, are already just, I mean, you talk about the Colorado, it's, uh, every year it seems like it's getting a little bit lower. And a lot of that is agriculture. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm so as a hunter and fisherman, um, I'm stoked that we have people like you guys that are speaking up for us and, and, you know, really fighting for the salmon. It's, it's what we need. And personally, I'd, I'd be able, I'd be so willing to, uh, to give up, uh, you know, having a green lawn 
if it meant that we could have some more salmon or or have the rivers be healthy again or you know if you have to use a little bit less electricity uh, I, I know uh, you know there's not a ton of people that think like that but that's the way I think of it and I don't know I'm just glad that we have guys <laughs> yeah yeah glad that we guys yeah we have guys like you yeah come out anytime Chris uh, Chris is working on his uh, his new boat project right now so he'd love to take you out I'm sure <laughs> yeah Ryan the door is always open man if you want to get out here and catch a Chinook or, or a steelhead let's make it happen heck yeah well so I just I wanted to touch on one more thing uh, Chris that I forgot to touch on so uh, it's a little interesting to me that the sockeyes have don't have as much like priority put on them because the way I thought about salmon and the way I thought about like the breeding I thought that the sockeyes um, needed like shallower water um, you typically I feel like you see them going farther up these river systems whereas like Chinook uh, king salmon you know they'll up in Alaska they'll just spawn right in the middle of the Kenai which is you know 10 20 feet deep or I don't know how deep it is but a deeper river channel so with that being said I would think that like Chinooks would have a, an easier time maybe adapting to like having these dams there um, is there any uh, thought process there on you know why they chose Chinook salmon over like sockeye or is there any any reasoning for that um, from a recreational standpoint, I, I mean, I think it's the quality of fish. Mm-hmm. Um, kings have always been looked at. I mean, they're given the nickname king for a reason. You know, they're 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 the yeah. largest species of salmon, the highest fat content. Um, if you go into any grocery store, uh, king salmon from from Alaska is always going to have like the priciest tag, um, by yeah. a far margin. Um. And so I think it, I think there's from like a, from an economy standpoint, that's probably why. Um, whereas sockeye probably doesn't, you know, it doesn't produce as much of a yield, but I'm not sure. I haven't really dove into that, to that part of the hatchery side of yet. So I'm just speculating. Um, okay. But from yeah. like a, yeah. guess, like an industry standpoint, that's what, it, that's what my guesses would be. Um, okay. But I mean, from the reservoir thing, you know, yeah, uh, Chinook can um, spawn in, in deeper waters, but um, you know they're still going to be relatively shallow. Um, if you get into any of these coastal waters or any of these headwaters, you know they're still going to be. You know you'll have um, you know usually runs are pretty separate, but you, there is going to be some crossover. And when I'm talking about runs, like you know. Um, you know, Chinook will come in, you know, if we're talking about one river, you know, Chinook will come in and then, and then Cohos will come in behind them, um, over, over, you know, however many weeks or months, um, you know, Sockeye will, will float in there somewhere too. Um, and they'll all have, all have like their kind of place in the river. Um, but the, the common denominator for all of the fish is that they need cold, clear water. And so yeah. these dams provide, or you know, are, are are creating these these thermal these thermal lakes that doesn't matter if they're, you know, uh, you know, more adaptable to to deeper waters or not, um, even if they are aren't, um, you know, they still need cold clear water to do their to do their stuff. 
Um, and so that's what these dams are, you know, they're just taking away pristine habitat is what they're doing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other thing about dams is that they really slow down the migration, both upstream and downstream. And that reservoir behind offers just abundant habitat for, you know, lack of a better term, warm water invasive species like smallmouth bass and carp and others that were really not native to the Columbia system. Um, and so you get, you know, Northern Pike minnow, right? Like there's a bounty on Northern Pike in Oregon. One of the few species that still has a bounty. And I mean, somebody made, God, I think somebody made over a hundred grand uh, last year, just doing nothing but fishing for, for pike minnow. Um, and it's all because these dams, you know, have warmer water and, and flat water that allows for these invasive fish that then eat a lot of the juveniles. And, you know, just think about if you're a fish and you're trying to get down to the ocean and how much slower it would be behind the influence of a dam versus a free flowing river. And if you got to fight that through not only the, the dams on the Columbia, but then those upper four snake river dams as well. Yeah. Uh, it's a lot of work. I mean, growing up on the, one of the things about Chinook and, and uh, Sockeye too, growing up on the Columbia, right outside of Astoria, we used to fish a lot and you would see two different kinds of Chinook come in. One was called a Thule. And the Thule is, uh, is Chris, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but this is what I always learned growing up is that Thule's are the, the fish, the Chinook that, uh, don't travel past the dams. And so they're going to go spawn somewhere on a coastal stream. And that means that they don't have the same fat reserves and oil content that the, what they call the upriver brights do. Hmm. And so if you're fishing on the coast, right in the sort of the, uh, slack water of the Columbia where it meets the ocean, if you had a choice to let go a Thule, you would let it go. Cause you'd want to save uh, your freezer for an upriver bright that has a lot more oil and fat content because, you know, some of these fish are going a thousand miles and mm-hmm. that oil and fat content that they need is significantly more when they enter the, the freshwater than some Chinook that's going to a coastal stream. So, hmm. yeah, Ryan, I'll, you know, if you ever out here, Ryan, we'll have to do a, a taste test because I'll put two fish right next to each other. And you're, it's just a, it's an incredible difference. Um, into not only how it, it you know it appears but then also how it tastes um and so i mean there's just a lot more a lot more to it um so yeah well but yeah no anyway, sir, go for it well yeah i was just gonna say that's funny because I, I was actually just up in alaska doing some salmon fishing up there and um well i guess maybe this doesn't uh allude to your point but i so i don't know probably brought home four salmon three or four uh cohos it was the water was super high up there so we didn't have a great uh time salmon fishing but it was you know we still got into them a couple days but um we caught i caught one that was like definitely farther down on the on the casilofa river um but then we caught the others the a, a significant amount higher um and so far the fillets from the fish that i caught lower down uh that was like the best salmon that i've ever tried and then the one uh the the fillets that i've tried from the the fish up the river um were were still delicious but i don't think they were as good now that could there's so many factors that could be going into that but i would i would assume that it probably has to do with uh you know the one farther down on the kasilov still had more of that fat inside of it versus the one going up higher. I don't know. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, most of the time, 
at least for sockeye, and I think this is generally true for other salmon as well, but and once they enter the freshwater system, they're just focused on getting to their spawning grounds. So they're not going to eat nearly as much as they did. You know, they, their reserves are really what they're using at that point. And so the further up the system you get them, typically the uh, – and the later in the season, typically the more sort of – you know, they're, they just start to rot from the inside out essentially. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's pretty crazy. But sockeye salmon, one of the reasons that the Columbia doesn't have a ton of them is because we don't have as many lake systems that end at the ends of these tributaries. And most of the time, sockeye need a lake at part of their, their life cycle. Mm-hmm. So we do have sockeye in the Columbia system, but it's not as extensive as somewhere like Alaska uh, or British Columbia, where they have a lot of those huge glacial-fed lakes that are part of the system. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So, yeah, going well, back to Chris, the did- question too, Ryan, it probably just made the most sense in terms of, like, feasibility to, you know... Yeah. Um, to produce uh, kings and coho as well. So, but uh, the yeah. one point I wanted to make was, you know, with these, you know, with some of these reservoirs, we got, like Mike was saying, we've got enough um, warm water that you know Midwest guys would be appalled to see, you know, a lot of these guys out here and gals, you know, killing a lot of smallmouth bass because you know we're one, it's it's super. It's it's allowed, and two, you know, we're trying to uh, put a dent in the predator population for for salmon and steelhead, right? Giving them a little bit more of a chance. Same with walleye. We've got you yeah. know very robust walleye uh, population, you know, above Bonneville, and you know, one of the best places to fish for walleye is in front of the the shoots and uh, uh, John Day rivers, and um, you know, people are are and there's no limit either. There's no limit to how many fish you can keep or how many fish you can kill. So. Hmm. Yeah, that's the man. It it's all the factors. It sounds like, but it seems like the dam. You take the dam out of the equation, makes the water colder, makes it not as um, you know ideal for all these smallmouth bass, at least. And um, yeah, so so one last question uh, before we kind of switch over to the to the other side of the Pacific Northwest, kind of the the more big game side. Um, what what's the what is the status of legislation for getting these four uh, Snake River dams removed? Where is that at? So right now, and if people want to get involved, for anybody that's listening, um, uh, Senator Murray and uh, Governor Inslee both uh, have put together the most recent plan um, of, and a feasibility study. Um, that they actually just uh, put a final release on it, I think back in uh, the end of August, beginning of September, um, saying that it's viable. You know, this is what, these are all the pieces of the pie that we have to complete um, uh, to make it happen. So, you know, removal of the dams, um, you know, taking care of transportation, agriculture, and stuff like that. Right now, we need a, a big push from the public um, to basically say, okay, cool. Thank you guys for making putting this plan together. Now please enact it, right? We need we need we need action towards it. And so I think that's the the biggest step forward in, in terms of policy right now is that we need action from our from our elected officials, um, uh, from everybody in DC and and you know it doesn't really matter because this is like a this is a big federal issue. So this is gonna have to come down to um, you know a big um, a big vote. So uh, the more support that we can have from the public on this, the better. Right on. Well, everybody listening, if you like salmon, if you, if you like life, if 
you like uh, fishing, <laughs> go uh, go follow the follow the instructions of Mr. Chris there. Um, so yeah, I want to I kind of want to switch over to another. Um, you know, it's interesting because I feel like conservation, although you know we are miles ahead of most other countries out there and most other places in the world. You know, conservation is always kind of uh, a tricky subject, right? And I would assume it's kind of also because you're just always dealing with the species that you want to conserve, which are the ones that are are doing the worst. But uh, we're going to be talking about mule deer a little bit uh, on the eastern side of the Pacific Northwest. And, um, you know, it's no secret that uh, there are a lot of places where mule deer numbers are in decline. Um, but Mike, if you wouldn't mind just uh, kind of breaking down the the status of mule deer in the eastern Pacific Northwest, there. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think this is sort of an aside, but somewhat related. It's just you know the fact that you can go salmon fishing and then go hunt mule deer or Rockies or Roosevelts all elk all in the same day is is one of the reasons I love Oregon and the Northwest in general. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just it's such a discrepancy of, of uh, climates that we have when you get past the Cascades um, that are really the barrier of moisture. And so once you, you know, on the on the western side of Oregon and Washington, we have blacktail deer, and then you sort of get these mixed blacktail mule deer. Uh, they call them bench leg bucks in the in the Cascades. And then as soon as you get to the dry drier east side, uh, we switch to a mule deer subspecies, um, and you know, historically, Oregon uh, and Washington had had great mule deer numbers. Um, in 2003, that was when the last uh, management plan was put together for the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife on mule deer. And at that time, the objective was to have 314,000 mule deer throughout the state, uh, which would really put us up there in terms of other western states and and keep us um, in line with, with some of the best opportunities in the west. Um, you know, fast forward now almost 20 years later from the last management plan in 2003, and the most recent numbers from ODFW that came out were about 165,000 mule deer. Um, so we're, you know, just right at half of what the objective is statewide um, for mule deer in Oregon. And, and that's not a, I should caution this, but this isn't just an Oregon specific trend. I mean, unfortunately, mule deer westwide across all 13 states are typically in decline. Uh, there's a number of factors for that, and, and I can definitely get into that in the next little bit. Um, but it's tricky because, you know, right now, yesterday, uh, Oregon's controlled Eastern Oregon rifle buck season just closed. Uh, and we had nothing but 80-degree weather for the whole 10-day season. So on the bright side, I guess there's a lot of buck escapement um, since a lot of animals weren't moving around. But um, it was a it was a hard hunt this year. So is that a is that a normal time frame for like a population objective, um, like what is that twenty twenty years as of right now? I thought that a lot of fish and game departments like reassessed it every you know every few years. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. So Ryan, you're right. Um, that is something that you know. BHA, TRCP, Oregon Hunters Association. I mean, basically every you know sportsman-focused group in Oregon is working on right now. And the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife, to their credit, has has started the process of a new management plan. 
Um, but typically in Oregon, they try to update all species specific management plans every 10 years. Um, so we're definitely overdue for, for a new management plan. Um, and we're all closely working with the department to develop this latest plan. Um, hopefully it's going to be a lot better and it's going to identify some factors that we can work on collectively as well as something the agency can work on specifically um, to improve these numbers. Because, uh, you know, especially, I guess, what I'm thinking of specifically is this, the, we had a really tough winter in, in 2016, 2017 that came late. <clears throat> and that year alone, uh, the population estimate for deer fell about 35,000 um, from that tough winter. And, you know, mule deer are prey species. They, they're sort of cyclical in a sense. Um, but to lose, you know, 15% of the, of the total population in one year was a big hit. And we're still recovering from that. Some of the big factors that have been contributing to um, migration, uh, the mule deer populations decline, at least the way I see it, is uh, drought. Obviously, not as much green grass for, for deer to get to and fatten up for the winter. Um, but then it's also uh, the breaking and almost like spotting of their uh, migration corridors, which you know we've we've seen in recent years, can be up to you know close to 200 miles. Um, are there any other factors up there in Oregon that have contributed to you know the decline of the population there? You've met the most contentious topic in Oregon, probably Ryan. Uh, <laughs> there is so many factors that affect mule deer. Affect mule deer. Um, you know they're really. Uh, they're not, you know, whitetail numbers are actually increasing in Eastern Oregon. Uh, whitetail are increasing in a lot of the Eastern states and they're just a more adaptable species, I would say, than mule deer. Um, mule deer are really sensitive. I mean, to live in the sagebrush steppe ecosystem or in the high desert, uh, to be a migratory species, it's it takes a lot of work uh, and a lot of good habitat to be able to do that. And, you know, you definitely mentioned a couple of things that uh, are the primary factors uh, climate change and and the impact from climate change related to like ongoing drought, uh, wildfires that are more frequent, especially in the sagebrush steppe. There was just a report that came out um, from the, who published this report? The uh, US Geological Survey that showed that half of all the original sagebrush ecosystem has been lost. Uh, wow. And we're losing it at, at a rate of 1.3 million acres a year. Um, so to put that in perspective, I mean, that's half a Yellowstone in a single year that we lose in terms of sagebrush habitat. And that's, you know, it's again, that's climate change, that's drought, but that's also wildfire and invasive species that are a response to wildfire. Um, so I know you had Hal Herring on a podcast not too long ago talk about the history of public lands, but, uh, you know, he really did a good job of highlighting sort of the impacts of cheatgrass and medusa head. Um, yeah. And cheatgrass and medusa head are two of you know the two arch nemesis for mule deer at least in um in eastern oregon and washington in terms of you know deer are a browse species versus elk which are more grass dependent um and every time you get a wildfire it tends to sort of take out that brush um and a lot of times that brush used to come back and it would be infrequent patchy fires and you would have patches of brush and patches of grass and, and other things. Whereas now with the introduction of cheatgrass and other annual grasses that really create a fine, um, uh, a fine fuel that can carry loads much more continuously than in the past, you end up with these cycles of fire at more 10 to 15 year rates that 
kind of breed more cheatgrass and medusa head um, and you don't get back your bunch grass and your shrub component of the ecosystem um, so that's a big factor uh, you know i think the other thing that has been it, it doesn't like to be acknowledged but it's a fact is that places like bend oregon where i'm from um, it, we've had huge development over the past 20 years i mean the population of deschutes county has grown 200 percent in the last 20 years uh, and that's not just here right that's that's uh uh, Grand Junction, that's Vancouver, Washington, that's all these places that we love to be and recreate. Uh, the West is still being settled because in part we have, you know, an abundance of public lands, which we all like to recreate on and enjoy. Um, but here in Deschutes County, between the development and then the impact from development in terms of like the number of recreational use on our public lands uh, isn't good for wildlife. And this, this spot in particular, Central Oregon, really used to be a mule deer factory. Um, and over the past 20 years, you know, we've gone from almost at management objective to now where uh, it's some of the most drastic declines in the state here in Central Oregon. Um, right. And there's, you know, there's a couple of, of solutions, and one of them is, is working on migratory corridors and protection of those. And that's something that both BHA and TRCP are really closely involved on here in Oregon and in Washington. Um, Washington's done some great work on wildlife crossings and Oregon is catching up to that. Um, one of the things I really like about working on wildlife crossings in terms of you know having a highway that breaks through a natural migratory corridor for mule deer or elk is it's really not contentious. It's one of the, the most sort of like uh, just happy-go-lucky types of things we work on. Um, it's yeah. really well supported. We just need to find more money for it. Um, but here in Oregon, just last year, uh, the Oregon Department of Transportation, um, thanks to the help of partners, was uh, given $7 million, which is the first time that they've ever had money to work on wildlife crossings that were dedicated through the budget. Um, so it's, we're heading in the right direction. Um, we're starting to get more wildlife crossings. But it's not just you know crossings on highways. It's also the habitat that they live in. Uh, that can be impacted by fences or, you know, right now in Oregon and Washington, one of the other hot topics related to mule deer is, is solar and wind energy. Um, we're trying to come up with more ways to be uh, less influenced and less um, relied upon with, with carbon and fossil fuels. And that's great. <clears throat> but oftentimes um, it comes, you know, just any development comes at a cost. And so we're really working closely yeah. with solar and wind developers to work from the start about like what we call smart siting. And so trying to place these facilities in a place that has the least impact possible for wildlife, because especially solar, you get these, uh, you know, that it's electrical, right? So you can't have wildlife in within the solar fields unless it's specifically set up for it. So oftentimes they create these eight foot tall chain link fences that are a complete exclosure and if you put that in the wrong place um it's really bad news especially for mule deer who have been shown you know some great research on mule deer migrations um and they're very very learned in their migratory paths and so you know when they're a fawn and their their mom's leading them to their summer or winter range they will take those exact same steps for the rest of their life um and that's yeah. pretty unique well that's a that's a very good point because I've uh, we we just had Brian Webster on uh, who's BHA down here 
Um, and we were talking about that on the podcast. And I didn't realize that it was like that. Because to me, the way I see it, or the way I've heard it, is essentially like if you put a, a, a wildlife crossing uh, in the wrong creek drainage, the, the mule deer aren't going to use it. Or if you put it, you know, uh, 100 yards to on the other side of this hill, they're not going to use it. Is that is that the way you see it? Or or is it uh, is it as precise as everybody is, is saying it is? Well, there, there's a couple things. It's a learned trait, and so you can relearn it. Uh, and so for the benefit of the species, right, like there's, there's always this cost-benefit analysis where you think about, what's the cost of reducing collisions if we have to put a migratory path somewhere else um, mm. versus the benefit of having less mule deer be killed. And that's something we definitely think about um, both from the, the nonprofit partners as well as the state agencies like ODOT and ODFW. Um, I was just on a tour this week where we were looking at, uh, you know, the cool thing is since 2012, uh, Oregon has been putting out hundreds and hundreds of callers with GPS technology rather than the old, like when I was in college for wildlife, uh, we were still using, you know, telemetry data where we were holding up a VHF with microphones and listening to the beeps for how close they were, which doesn't do very well for migrations at a fine scale. Um, But now, you know, most callers that are going on wildlife are, are GPS enabled. They fall off after three years and they're taking a point on that animal every hour or two. And so it opens up this whole new world of, of data collection to really understand, like back in the day, they, when they first started with GPS, they would take callers data twice a day and upload it because every point takes money uh, and takes up battery space and storage space. And so they would do two points a day, but two points a day wasn't enough to find out where they're crossing specific locations. And so I, all, I say all that to say now we're able to combine collision data from state agency transportation departments who are collecting the carcasses with the state agencies who are doing the wildlife monitoring and overlay both the migration paths and the carcass collection to find out where the best fit is for a crossing. Um, so by doing that and then adding in funnel fencing, um, we're able to, to mitigate a lot of the challenges around location. Are, are blacktails being affected as much as mule deer or are they showing to be a little bit more uh, adaptable or maybe it's just that their habitat's not being touched as much, but are they, are they getting hit in terms of uh, population numbers? Uh, blacktail are more stable, um, but they're also a lot harder to survey for. Um, one of the things that they do, so blacktail live in these dense western forests, and it's, you know, with the eastern Oregon mule deer, they do flights uh, in a helicopter or a, a fixed-wing aircraft. Um, can't do that with blacktail, and so what they've found over the past several years is that they're doing a lot more of scat collection um, and, and picking up samples of DNA based on uh, square mile stats. And, you know, blacktail... Um, are doing better. They're still in the 300,000 ish range um, for the population here in Oregon. Um, but they, they are pretty heavily impacted by, you know, different forest management practices because they really like that early seral and edge habitat. Um, mm-hmm. And so on the federal forest, they're doing less logging these days. Um, but Oregon has about 7 million acres of private timberland as well on the west side. Um, and so that timber on the private is still logged every you know, rotationally every 40 years or so. Um, and so currently, you know, that's another 
I won't get into the details on that because we're talking about Eastern Oregon mule deer, but that is another contentious issue today in Oregon is that uh, a lot of the historically open access to the public private timberland is now converting to sort of a permit system where you have to pay to play to be a hunter in the private timber. Um, it has pros and cons uh, as an advocate of, of low cost uh, and, and somebody who grew up hunting private timberland as an opportunity. Uh, I hate to see that, but it is something that's happening. Um, and there are reasons for it. I mean, it's private land. So they have opportunities to do things that um, are at their will. Uh, but a lot of the best blacktail hunting is still on private lands in Oregon. Hmm. So what, what's the breakdown of like, so we have um, climate change, AKA drought or, or, you know, wildfires. Um, we have that, we have uh, population, um, migration routes being, you know, uh, destroyed, I guess, <laughs> with, with housing and stuff like that. Um, and then, you know, all these other factors, what, what, what's the biggest piece of the pie there with, um, you know, contributing to the decline of mule deer numbers there in, in the Eastern Pacific Northwest? Uh, I, I wish, you know, I, I think habitat is, is the biggest decline. I didn't really dive into it, but there was, um, so with ODFW working on some new, uh, management plan, uh, paperwork and trying to get this rolling, um, we've got a great resource in, in what they call the Starkey Experimental Forest. I don't, have you ever heard of the Starkey Experimental Forest? I have not, no. It's a, uh, it's a really cool uh, U.S. Forest Service uh, research station. Um, and it's about 25,000 acres based outside of La Grande, Oregon, uh, that started back up in the late 80s with the idea for the U.S. Forest Service to have a dedicated space to study the impacts of... Uh, multiple use on ungulate populations. And so for the last 30, 40 years, um, researchers for the U.S. Forest Service have been uh, really intensively studying things like uh, the effects of grazing on ungulates or the effects of timber harvest on ungulates. And that they're also looking right now at the effect of, of elk populations on mule deer populations and if there's interspecies competition. Mm -hmm. Um, but one of the studies that the Starkey Experimental Forest has done is in 1995, they went back and did a, uh, they, they, they did a quick survey of um, protein content of uh, basically the top browse, the top species that mule deer are eating. And they did this at what they call um, the start of the growing season and then at the end of the growing season or what they call senescence. And they did that in 1995. And then they repeated that exact same study in 2018, I believe. Um, and what they found is that, you know, these plants have a growing cycle. And during that growth cycle, when they're, you know, doing the photosynthesis process and all the rest, they've got this large amount of protein and, uh, you know, valuable minerals and water content and all the rest. It's really good for a lactating or newly uh, new uh, dough that just had a fawn. Um, it's what they need to carry them through the winter. And they found that three weeks has, it's, it's been reduced by three weeks in the past 30 years, that cycle of, of valuable protein. And so these deer in wow. the summer range, um, it's been shown in Oregon at least that oftentimes it's the summer range that's the limiting factor for 
deer population growth in Oregon um, due to things like climate change and habitat loss. Um, and winter range is still critically important, but winter range is a place where animals go to just sort of rest and try to make it through till spring when plants start up again. And so we really got to figure out how to do more active habitat work, like uh, forest thinning and and bringing in more shrub components and uh, vegetation in Eastern Oregon's forests. Um, So both of you guys are, and especially Chris up there in Washington, you, you definitely hear things about the politics of especially Washington and maybe maybe Chris can jump in on this one if if he wants to but um, are you guys noticing like obviously there was the the bear decision right with the Washington uh, game commission have you guys noticed any other uh, political you know whether it's legislation or or just influence um that's maybe coming from you know the the traditionally more urban areas up there that is there legislation that is negatively affecting mule deer or i'm sure it can still be applied to steelhead uh have you guys noticed that uh that's been a a tougher battle as of late I, I can jump in while we're, uh, or Chris, go for it. <clears throat> well, I mean, I think, yeah, from, from like a simple answer, yes. I don't know if it's from, you know, urban stakeholders or anything like that. I think the, you know, you touched on the, the spring bear issue um, in Washington, and it's just been an unfortunate journey um, since last year, you know. Uh, you know, we're seeing a, a, a almost a shutout uh, of stakeholder representation um, from the governor's office, um, you know, from the, from the commission level, uh, we're seeing uh, commissioners um, ignore best available science and recommendations from the agency's leading biologists. Um, and we're seeing a trend towards, uh, you know, with the most recent, recent trend we're seeing, you know, we're, we, we, um, BHA, the Washington chapter, as well as a coalition that we had a, a large hand in putting together about a 10 plus orgs um, of, of hunting and fishing organizations in the state, uh, you know, recommending uh, or putting a recommendation forward for a current uh, commission seat um, that has been an advocate um, for our hunters and anglers um, since her time there. Uh, you know, and, and early predictions is that she's not going to get that seat. Mm. Um, and instead it's going to be replaced with somebody that supports conservation, um, whether they, they support hunting and fishing, um, is, is up in the air. And so it's, it's a, it's a sad trend that we're seeing, you know, with this, uh, preservation ideology and rhetoric that's, that's, that's kind of pushing through the, the commission level right now. So. Yeah, and that's I think that's um, something to definitely be cognizant about uh, as we work. You know, Chris and I both work closely in this space, and I work with um, you know hunting specific groups, and then also conservation groups that are really focused on um, goals that aren't related to hunting and fishing. And and there's a lot of things that bring us together, like wildlife migrations, um, and then there's issues like predation that uh, or or predator hunting that that we just don't discuss. Uh, I would say in Oregon. 
one of the most contentious wildlife bills that ever passed. Uh, I should say it wasn't even a bill. Uh, it was a um, it was a ballot initiative. Uh, in 1994, Oregon put it on the ballot to ban cougar hunting uh, with hounds. And mm-hmm. it still gets talked about uh, all the time here in Oregon because it passed 52 to 48%. And ever since 1994, um, you know, I, whether there's a tie there or not is up for discussion, but, but big game populations have declined uh, with the loss of the ability to use hounds for cougar hunting in our state. Um, you can still go out and, and get an administrative permit where ODFW sees a need to reduce cougar populations. Um, but to openly go out with your own hounds and hunt cougars in the state of Oregon is no longer allowed and hasn't been since 1994. Um, so that's an example going way back that still sort of has a, a, a discussion topic, even in today's age. Um, but there's a lot of, uh, a, of good work going on. And I think one of the things that's really helpful, like Chris mentioned, is putting up these uh, sort of organized, you know, so the TRCP in general, um, we were formed in 2002 with the idea that there's a lot of groups working in, in Washington, D.C. That, that sort of bring camo to the Capitol, but we're not working in unison. And so TRCP in 2002 was formed with the, one of the really specific intents was to create a, a united coalition uh, to bring good policy forward for hunters, anglers, and conservation all in one. Um, and today we've got a policy council that has 60 different organizations that really bring some great ideas. Like, you know, you talked with Joel about Mapland and, and some other bills that are really, really beneficial to sportsmen that come together through these policy councils and, and cooperative partnerships. Um, so Washington, Oregon also just started a, what they call the Oregon Sportsman's Conservation Partnership. Uh, that's a collection of, of hunter-angler-based groups. Um, and I think unifying together is really helpful to maintain um, the presence here in Oregon for, for good good conservation and also continued hunting and angling opportunities. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's so important, <clears throat> but I, I bring it up because it seems like, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, you don't hear about <clears throat> Montana, uh, you know, well, I guess, I mean, there are some contentious things there uh, just with the, the game management up there. But you don't really hear uh, these these bands coming about in Montana or um, a lot of the western states. But Colorado has had a few um, interesting ballot box initiatives like the wolf thing. Um, but then it, it was also just brought up, uh, I think this last year, ban all cat hunting and stuff like that. And, um, you know, I think we're we're definitely dealing with a uh kind of the same thing with our fishing game commission i mean we're i would say that uh i'm not sure exactly what the numbers are right now but last i heard you know there's there's less and less uh hunting and angling support in those commissions than there had been in days past and so i mean it just speaks to the importance of having an organization like trcp who can really fight and and knows the uh, the law side of everything, right? Cause you can sign all sorts of petitions, but it, it really takes, um, you know, lobbyists or, or whatever you want to call them, uh, to, to really be putting their, their, uh, their boots on the ground and, and kind of fighting for hunting and angling and stuff like that. And conservation too. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on now that's kind of almost anti-conservation, 
just in legislation. I mean, you, you think about the, the um, <clears throat> law that was brought about by the Georgia senator trying to basically strip uh, Pittman, the PR um, Act, and, you know, you think about the, the one that was brought up in Utah, the Houses Act, I think is what it was called, that would basically sell off public land for to build more houses. Um, it's just, it's an interesting position. I always talk about that on this podcast because I really do find it fascinating. And I, I think that, you know, there's, there's this, uh, there's this kind of precipice that we're coming to, um, just in terms of conservation. And there's almost like two paths that we can go on. And, you know, I, I know all of us are fighting for one path, but there's also a lot of other people that are, whether they're fighting for the other path or they're just kind of blindly going down that because that's the way society is going there's definitely two paths and we're we're almost to that point now so conservation and you know bha buying public land uh fighting for hunters and fishermen it's so much more important now. yeah yeah no it's a huge deal and i think you know the groups like trcp bha rmef all, all the rest um really play a huge role in in sort of this bipartisan effort right like TRCP is bipartisan by nature, and we do that because we were effective. And in today's gridlock in Congress, uh, we can continue to be effective, whether it's the Trump administration or the Biden administration, um, because we we think, uh, you know, I like to think we're we're just common sense based conservation, and how do we how do we continue to have sustainable use of our environment, but also make sure that it's it's exactly that it's uh, it's an environment that's wild and. Uh, has open space for habitat for wildlife. Um, here in Oregon, I would say, you know, I got to give credit to the Oregon Hunters Association. It's been around for 30 plus years, but they stood up early on and have really been a great state voice. You know, they don't work on federal legislation very often, um, but they're, they're really focused on maintaining hunting, specifically hunting opportunities in the state of Oregon um, and have had a lobbyist at the state level for a long time. And, um, I think it's something a lot of states could be looking at more as a model to have a, you know, I work closely with them and, and I work a lot on federal issues, but it's a great partnership to have sort of these state-based organizations to partner with. And I think that's why we're seeing a lot more of these coalitions, you know, um, popping up. I know uh, Colorado has one, California has one, um, you know, BHA is uh, along with TRCP is the one within Oregon. Um, and with the one in Oregon was a great example for us to push forward for the one in Washington. Um, and it brings everybody, no matter, you know, on any type of the side of the aisle where you're at with hunting and fishing, you know, we're, we're, we're coming together in a single voice, um, and, and fighting for opportunity and bringing those collected resources there too. And so, you know, where, where TRCP is, is that federal top-down approach working with elected officials more. Uh, and groups like um, like BHA uh, is 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 grassroots, right? We're working with the public, uh, hunters and anglers themselves, um, creating opportunity, and um, you know it marries those resources together and those interests, and it, it brings us forward so that we're a stronger voice, um, either, either at the state or at the federal level. So uh, it's really encouraging to see all of these coalitions pop up because. Um, Ryan, I think you're, you know, you, you hit it right on the head. You know, we're seeing a lot of this 
I don't know if it's anti-hunting. Um, I don't like to think it's anti-hunting, but you know, it's, it's definitely going in that direction of, of, you know, anti-hunting rhetoric across the country, um, with a lot of these wildlife commissions and agencies. Um, and so, you know, I think with these coalitions, we're, we're fighting for opportunity. Um, and, and hopefully we can, you know, keep it going, not only for, for conservation, um, but for, um, uh, next generation. Yeah, and, and Chris is working with a great group up there in Washington with Congressional Sportsman's Foundation and Ducks Unlimited and BHA, and I, I think that coalition that's coming together is really going to help um, bolster uh, kind of the hunting and fishing voice in in the state of Washington. So I'm looking forward to working more with that. Yeah. Well, thank you, gentlemen. I, I really appreciate y'all both jumping on it. It's kind of funny because I feel like. Uh, in listening to both of you guys talk about um you know both steelhead and salmon and mule deer there's a lot of parallels i mean there's both species that are migration dependent right um they're they're fickle with uh you know the the things that they eat or the things that they need to survive um and you know they 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 need a certain climate and they're both kind of being affected by some of the same things i mean um and I, I think there's a lot of species out there like that. Um, but, you know, Pacific Northwest, uh, those are two of the, I mean, even mule deer out in Oregon and Washington, the, that's a pretty famed area. And obviously salmon and steelhead, um, you know, that's the, basically the, those three states out there are the only, uh, well, I guess they got some salmon runs on the East Coast there, but they're really the only spot where you can catch a king salmon in the lower 48. Um, so super important to, to keep those, um, both of those species around for a long time. Uh, did either of you guys have anything else that you wanted to add here at the end? Yeah, I, did, I, I had something real no. quick. I just, you know, I, <laughs> I don't want to leave this whole podcast with doom and gloom on mule deer populations because I think uh, there's some really exciting opportunities out there that are that you know Chris and I both are working on, um, and you know so with mule deer decline, we're our organization organizations are working with others to really think outside the box on places that we can strategically look at as as opportunities to improve habitat, um, and so two of those real quick are are. Uh, we're working on a, a campaign on one of the West's largest national wildlife refuges called Heart Mountain National Antelope Refuge. Uh, it was actually sort of the linchpin of the recovery of pronghorn in the West uh, that was designated by uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt back in the 30s and brought helped to bring pronghorn numbers back from the brinks of extinction at 15,000 back to where they are now today at over a million throughout the West. Um, it's an amazing landscape. It's managed by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, which means that it's really got this wildlife first mandate, which is pretty unique for public lands. Um, a lot of public lands are managed under multiple use. And these refuges use, uh, every 15 years, they're supposed to update their, what they call a comprehensive conservation plan. Um, and those plans dictate everything that the refuge does management-wise for the next 15 years or more. And Heart Mountains is currently from 1994. So it's pushing 30 years old. It's, uh, it's really out of date with the latest science. And mule deer numbers have declined significantly. Uh, this was the landscape that was the first place to ever bring back bighorn sheep, reintroduce bighorn sheep into Oregon. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But it's really, I can't describe how, how crazy beautiful this place is in terms of just this high desert island 
that has moisture where not much moisture can be found. Really critical to wildlife. Uh, it's got some great migration corridors. Um, but, but the bighorn sheep population um, has actually declined to the point where at one time it offered more than 40 different tags a year on bighorn sheep, which is huge given the limited opportunities bighorn sheep have. Uh, and today it has been closed down to bighorn sheep hunting uh, because of the decline. And so all that to say, our groups are working on updating uh, with working with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to update the comprehensive conservation plan. Um, which provides an opportunity for public input and the best available science to really guide the next 15 years or more of management. Um, and the reason that's such a big deal is because it's been a heritage place for hunters uh, for, for generations. Um, back in the 80s, you talked to people who got the chance to hunt it and they were, you know, they could find 30 bucks a day. Um, today, you might have to go a whole week before you see 30 bucks. Um, so it's, it's, lost a lot of the potential that it currently uh has has capacity for so that's a big place the other place real quick is the owyhee um owyhee is a uh it's a river that runs from northern nevada down uh into oregon and and meets the snake river on the border of idaho um but it's a vast area of sagebrush steppe habitat um and senator wyden has a bill there to uh safeguard um, a whole bunch of unprotected lands uh, and also improve grazing on that landscape for the for the ranchers and provide some economic development. So um, those are a couple things I think are bright spots to end on is that we're working on some exciting campaigns to, to help. You know, I know policy is not as sexy as, as something like jumping in a helicopter and going to to count mule deer, but it is really important work. And uh, the, the things Chris and I are doing is is hopefully making a big difference. Thanks, Mike, for plugging those in. <laughs> yep, totally. Yeah. No, that yeah, that's that's awesome. Um, well, I yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I have any other questions. That was a pretty pretty good good breakdown of uh, what y'all got going up there. And for anybody listening, uh, what is the best way? Like, so if take your two organizations out of it, right? Because um, both of you guys, um, you know, both BHA and TRCP, I, f I feel like are are a little bit, you know, they they cover all like species and you know account for all hunters, right? Um, are there any other specific conservation organizations that you guys would like uh, refer people to if they had to spend their money um, elsewhere? Do you guys have any recommendations? Well, obviously BHA first. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> of course, of course. No, I mean I think there's a ton of organizations and historical organizations that are do going out there, and I would just uh, tell anybody to do their research first and understand what organizations are actually doing and their actual impact uh, on these issues that they care about. First, figure out what you care about, whether that's fish, hunting, environment, ecology, whatever. Um, you know, RMEF does a great job. TU, TRCP. Um, a lot of these national organizations really are putting their money where their mouth is. Um, national Wildlife Federation, uh, you know, I don't know if you have any others, Michael. Yeah, those are all great, Chris. I mean, I, I think uh, here in Oregon, um, one of the fun things, you know, is, is to get involved. And this goes for any state you live in. But it's to me, it's really fun to be a part of, a, of just a state specific or regional specific group. Um, 
they do a lot of great local dinner. Like the, the Oregon Hunters Association has a Ben chapter, and uh, they do dinners once a month, and they do a lot of volunteer activities. Uh, just this weekend, actually, the Oregon Wild Sheep Foundation is headed out to go do a guzzler restoration project on Hart Mountain. Um, so if you're looking for community, like groups like the Oregon chapter of BHA, there's there's a whole bunch, um, but they add a lot of value because you can take your kids and your family and, and go spend a weekend doing something um, as well as supporting them with your pocketbooks at the end of the year. Well, hey, I, I really appreciate you guys. And uh, I think I'm probably definitely going to have to take you up on that, uh, on doing a little fishing and possibly even a, a mule deer hunt up there. Um, but yeah, I, I really appreciate you guys. And same, same goes. You ever want to come down to the, uh, the promised land here in Colorado? Uh, I, I'd be happy to show you around. Yeah, we didn't even talk, Ryan, about the, uh, the world's best trucker hunting here in Oregon. So I'll send you an invite for our Waihee Sportsman's trucker hunt. Oh yeah. Well, we got we actually have some surprisingly good chucker hunting right down the uh, right down the road here, where you can you can actually it's probably one of the best fisheries in in Colorado as well, just right in the, on the Gunnison. Um, but yeah, good chucker hunting. But I know it's nothing compared to like Eastern Oregon, Eastern Washington. Uh, you know that's where you see all the TV shows. But yeah, maybe that's maybe that's a whole nother podcast. There you there. go. Yeah, I mean nothing nothing better than a cast and blast to do a podcast on oh yeah i like it well uh, thanks yeah. for having me ryan yeah yeah ryan thank you so much for having us um and like i said earlier the door's always open so let me know when you're coming out right on man will do